How are you guys doing? You getting a little tired? No? So this morning we looked at the existence of God. I think to anybody who is honest, it's pretty obvious that some kind of force or mind created this world. Because something cannot come from nothing, this God must be awe-droppingly powerful. When you look at the intricacies of the body and the wisdom of the ecosystems, you must assume that this God is very wise. When you look at this inbuilt sense of justice and morality, you must assume that this God must be a person. By a person, I don't mean human. There's a difference philosophically between impersonal and personal. Impersonal forces are like wind and electricity. They don't make a choice. You just turn on a switch and it, the force happens. Star Wars God is kind of a, an impersonal force. And in some of the Eastern religions, God is just a, a force. But like what I said this morning, we have a strong sense of moral obligation that some things are right and some things are wrong. Even people who say they're moral relativists, if you try to steal from them, well, suddenly they believe in this moral obligation. They'll say, you should, you, it is wrong for you to steal from me. Psychopaths who think it's, who seared their conscience and they think it's okay to kill like Eric and Dylan. You try to kill them, they still know, wait, that's wrong. So people acknowledge, they may deny this moral obligation with their mouths, but they acknowledge it with their actions. Even a, a, a student who is, tries to make a paper about all truth is relative, there is no morality that's binding on everybody. If, the, if the, pref, the, the professor just decides to give him an F, the student's gonna go, wait, that's unfair. He will appeal to this law. So if there's moral obligation in this world, and we said how obligation, commands, moral commands can't come from an impersonal force, it must mean that this God is a person. And by that I mean has the ability has a will, can choose. This God must be good because apart from this God we have no standard for goodness. But beyond that, when it comes to some of the specifics, do we, what can we know about God? A lot of people say that all the religions are basically experiencing the same God. And I remember I first talk, I talked about the illustration of the elephant. Have you guys heard that before? Six blind men reaching for an elephant. Each one experiences the elephant in a different way. One grabs the tail and says, I'm feeling a rope. Another grabs the tusks and says, I'm, I'm feeling a spear. Another grabs the leg and says, I'm feeling a pillar, and so on and so forth. The point of this Middle Eastern, uh, Far Eastern parable is that we're all experiencing the same God, we're just experiencing Him in different ways. But 
there's major contradictions between the different religions about this God. Christians believe in a triune God, which means one God revealed in three persons at the same time, co-eternal, co-existent. In other words, there's one what God, three who's, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father's completely God, the Son's completely God, the Holy Spirit's completely God. They're distinct. They're co-eternal. There was never a time. Jehovah's Witness say that there was just God the Father, and then He created God the Son, and then God the Son created everything else. Jews teach that Jesus was a false prophet. He He was not who He claimed to be. Muhammad says, I mean, and Islam teaches that there is just a strict monotheism, one God, and that to accept that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God is to believe in false gods. Buddhism teaches a form of atheism. Hinduism teaches that there's hundreds of thousands of gods. Mormonism Mormonism teaches that God was once a man, and that there are now millions of gods, and that if man lives a moral life, man too can become God of their own little world. Each of these religions has their own holy books. Jews have the Torah, which is the Old Testament, and but they also have the Talmud, which is a collection of sacred texts that are written after, and they're extra-biblical. Christians, of course, have the Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament. Hindus have the Vedas, a collection of sacred poetry. Muslims have the Quran, which was supposedly dictated, or Muhammad was given wisdom to write it. Joseph's Mormons have the Book of Mormon, which Joseph Smith supposedly copied from hidden plates that no one else ever saw but him. So each of these different faith traditions claims to have a holy text. Is it possible that God wrote a book to reveal himself? God made us with minds to communicate. God made us relational beings. I believe that there is one particular holy book among all of these holy books. All these holy books claim to speak for God. But one of these books stands the test far better than all the other books. I want to give you seven evidences. This is going to be the handbook of Bible evidences. Seven evidences. So anywhere you take your hand, you can remember seven. That's how it'll work. But I'm going to go through this. It'll come clear eventually. Seven clues that set the Bible apart from these other books. Seven proofs of divine inspiration. Some of these are almost spooky. That there is something supernatural about the Bible that sets it apart from all the other man-made books that claim to speak for God. The first one... 
Hold out your, what finger is this called? Pinky. Pinky. Pinky stands for prophecy. In the Old Testament, God told the people of Israel that if someone claims to speak for God, if he gives a prophecy and it fails to come true, you know that that is not my spokesperson. You should stone him. God, elsewhere in the Old Testament, challenges these people who claim to be gods. Can you tell me the future? Most of the prophecies, and there's hundreds of prophecies in the Bible, most of the prophecies in the Old Testament have to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. Because as we're going to see, Jesus Christ is at the center of all of Scripture. So there are prophecies about Jesus' birth, about his teaching, about his life. Isaiah 53, you can read it sometime, is such a detailed description of the life of Christ that it's almost impossible to see this as referring to anybody else. I read this testimony of a Jew and a Christian showed him his Bible, Isaiah 53, handed his Bible to the Jew and said, read this Isaiah 53 and tell me, who is this referring to? Man of sorrows, our transgressions were laid on his back, he was buried with the rich, he was cut off as a young person, he lived to see the end of days. The Jew says, well, clearly that's referring to Jesus, but you must have tampered the Bible. There's no way this prophecy is in a Jewish Bible. So he went home eager to disprove this. And he remembered that he had been given a Jewish, authorized Jewish Bible for his bar mitzvah when he turned 13. He looked it up. There it was in Isaiah 53. The exact same prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. I mean, and we found copies of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls that even predate the birth of Christ. So they weren't corrupted with, after Jesus came. There's another prophecy in Ezekiel 26 about Tyre. Now, most cities around Israel received prophecies from God about their destruction. God cares about nations. He cares about the affairs of men. Tyre was like a New York city. And Ezekiel prophesied that an army would come against it, would tear down its walls, that many nations would come against it, that the walls would be torn down, and it would be scraped like a rock, bare as a rock, and that fishermen would spread their nets on it, and it would never be rebuilt again. Pretty audacious prophecy. Can you imagine someone prophesying that about New York? Well, sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar came, he attacked it, tore down its towers, like Ezekiel said. But the prophecy was only partially fulfilled. Later, Alexander the Great tore down every bit of rock and scraped it bare, just like Ezekiel prophesied, so that it could be a bridge across the moat. Tyre has never been rebuilt. You will see it on the map, but it's in a different place. And fish, fishermen spread their nets on it. There are many prophecies but the implications of this are that, like P Peter says in 2 Peter 1, no prophecy of scripture came by private interpretation. But men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is proof that this God knows the future. 
You know, this, this has a quite an application to our life. That you can never disappoint God. We disappoint ourselves all the time because we find out you're going to be on a spiritual high this week. You're going to go home and I don't know what kind of commitments to stay in God's word, to live a holy life. It's not going to be very far back into your regular life that you're going to find yourself breaking your commitments, falling back into old habits. And you're going to be so disappointed and go, man, how could God love me? I failed him again. But God knows the future in complete detail. He knows every failure that you are ever going to have. And He still chooses to love you. That's amazing. You can never disappoint God. This also means that God, no matter what kind of tragedy in your future, God has already prepared comfort, a way of escape, a way to bring good out of it. Casting Crown sings a terrific song about God is already there in the future. God declares the end from the beginning. There's great comfort in that. But so that is the P, prophecy. This next finger, what do you call this finger? Ring finger. The ring is a symbol of unity. So this is the next evidence. The Bible, any idea how many different authors, different men wrote the Bible? A lot. Yeah, about 40. Written over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents in different languages. So even though 40 different authors contributed to the Bible, there is a complete unity in the scriptures about controversial issues. Issues that when you explore other religions, you get different answers about the nature of God. The Bible has complete unity. It's a holy God who hates sin, but is also intensely loving. You have complete unity on the way of salvation. That we need God hates sin, that a perfect sacrifice must be offered for our sins so that we can enter into the presence of God. In the Old Testament, it was a ceremonial law, sacrifices that were a shadow, a foreshadowing of Christ coming. And in the New Testament, it's Jesus Christ, of course. The main theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus Christ. And this is the thing that is mind-boggling to me. Right from the beginning, when Eve took the apple, God came, tells the snake that the seed of that woman would crush the snake's head. That Satan would bite her, this man's heel, but his heel would crush. Right from the beginning, Jesus is mentioned right there. Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. If you look at almost every major character in the Old Testament, in some way, he's a picture of the, miss of the mission of Christ. Cain, I mean Abel, the pleased God with this righteous sacrifice, just like Jesus pleased God. Joseph was betrayed, sold for pieces of silver, ended up saving his people. Jesus was betrayed for silver, ended up saving his people. Moses was 
a lawgiver. Jesus gave us his law. Joshua took his people into the promised land. Jesus takes us to the promised land. The judges fulfilled a, a role of rescuing their people just like Jesus rescued our people. Ruth sacrificed herself, took a risk for the good of her family, just like Jesus did. Same thing with Esther. King David is an earthly picture of the perfect king that Jesus was. And on and on, all through the scriptures, we see that every character is a type of Christ. That the whole Bible points towards Jesus. Even people who had no idea about God's plan. It says in 1 Peter that what you got to see in this first century of God doing in the gospel, these were things that the prophets longed to look into. They wrote in obedience. And then Jesus, you remember that story after he rose from the dead? He is in disguise on the road to Emmaus. And he opens up the scriptures and says, These all testify to me. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you, look, you search the scriptures because you think in them they have eternal life. But they testify to me. That is incredible that all these people writing over 1,500 years are all pointing to the same man and there's this perfect accumulation which is incredible confirmation of God's sovereignty over the acts of people but also the supernatural uniqueness of Jesus Christ which we're going to get to tomorrow morning. So, unity. What does the P stand for? Prophecy. And the ring finger? Unity. unity. Now this next one, got to be careful with this one, but it's the big finger. The, it's the what? Oh no, so the, this is to remind that the Bible deals with the big issues of life. This one will be a little harder to remember. Usually when I quiz students later on, this is the one that's a little foggy, so a little more focus on this one. The, the main point behind this evidence is that the Bible talks about the big issues of life in a way that lines up with reality. Remember I said how God has written the book of nature, where he's revealed himself, his attributes are clearly revealed by the things made in that book of nature. God's also written his word. And there is complete agreement. Some people misinterpret nature. Some people misinterpret the Bible. But when you interpret the Bible correctly and you interpret nature correctly, there is complete unity between the two, proving that there's the same author behind it. I want to give you the example that you are given an iPhone 6 for Christmas. And you look at it, there's two instruction manuals in there. You look at the first one and it says always wear ear protection, do not wear loose clothing, and there's a picture of a chainsaw on it. You look and you go, I, I don't think this is the right owner's manual. You look, you pull up the, the next owner's manual and you look at it, okay, there's a picture of your phone, you look at it, the pictures match, okay, that rocked a good sign. You look, step one, push the button on the top, this will happen. Push the button on the top, it happens. Okay, you go, ah, this owner's manual is lining up with what I'm experiencing in the world. I'm pretty sure this is the owner's manual that goes with this. The Bible is like an owner's manual. 
And it makes claims about reality, about human nature, about consequences to our actions, that lots of people try to say the Bible's outdated, it's wrong, but when the Bible predicts consequences for actions, it happens consistently. It's because the person who made this world is the one who wrote the owner's manual. You know, in each one of these evidences, these other books claim to, you know, the Book of Mormon, for example, Joseph Smith made so many prophecies. Because of that, the Book of Mormon has had to be revised over a hundred times because well, every time a prophecy doesn't come true, it's embarrassing because it's written there in black and white for future generations to see. So you got to go, you got to change it. Um, other books say, you know, evil's an illusion. Does that, that doesn't line up with our gut instinct that evil's just an illusion. Like, evil is, evil's real. And we know it's wrong, but certain things are wrong. So we got the prophecy. We've got the ring finger, which stands for unity. The big finger, which is... Right. The big issues line up with what's real in life. Okay, this next finger, what's this one called? Index. The index finger. The Bible is an index to history. It's also called the pointer finger, but we'll go with index. It's an index to history. There was a skeptical archaeologist named William Ramsey, and he disbelieved the New Testament. He could not accept that the New Testament was authentic history because it contained miracles. He had a naturalistic, atheistic worldview, and in an atheist worldview, miracles are an absolute impossibility. So he rejected the Gospels as reliable based on the fact that they contained miracles. And he said, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, he said he made a mistake because he included so many historical details as he was making up this story. It's going to be easy to go to this area and prove it wrong. Something like 80 historical details in the book of Luke. But as William Ramsey got into it, every single name and place and historical figure mentioned, he started finding evidence for it. And he was so impressed that Luke was a meticulous historian of the highest order, won a complete respect. And he slowly began to see that if Luke is so careful in his historical details, maybe he's being honest about the miraculous details that happened. This is completely different again to the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon claims that the Native Americans are actually the lost tribes of Israel. That they came over here in a little boat and they established all these historical places and they're listed in the Book of Mormon. And it, it's been a little embarrassing for Mormon archaeologists and historians because not a single archaeological piece of evidence has ever confirmed any one of the history, events, or places, or people named in the Book of Mormon. Just by way of contrast, you can 
Anybody can make up a story. Anybody can claim to write for God. But time and time again, the New Testament and the Old Testament lines up with history. Same thing in scholars. It's, you know, it's been really amazing. If, if, if we had talked about this in the 16, 1700s, we wouldn't have had near as much archaeological evidence. And during the Enlightenment, which happened in, in around the 1600s and 1700s, where certain men began to hate the Bible, they just hated the, the supernatural aspect of it, so they started attacking it. And the more they attacked it, it was easy for them to dismiss things. Hittites? There's never been any evidence for the Hittites. Moses couldn't have written the first five books of the Bible because writing wasn't enveloped, developed for thousands of years later. But since that time, we have gained so much historical information. And since then, almost every name and detail and place has been uncovered by the archaeologist Spade. That's incredible. So, again, it's just proof that the Bible, where it can be tested, speaks the truth. And so, Jesus said something about, if you don't believe when I talk about earthly things, how can you believe if, by heavenly things? I, don't, I, I butchered that, but that was the basic idea. And the same thing is that if we couldn't trust the Bible on where it talks about earthly things, the historical details, scientific details, then we couldn't trust it where we can't test it. But if it proves itself trustworthy in all of the areas that we can test it, then we can believe that it's trustworthy in the areas where we can't test it. Okay, so prophecy, unity, the big issues, index to history. This next one is, is maybe the crux of the issue, one of the strongest evidences. Do you remember back in the days of Rome, in the days of gladiators, if one gladiator won to the point where the other gladiator was laying on his back, he would put the sword to the neck and he would look up at whatever Caesar was in place and the Caesar would either give a thumbs up or thumbs down. Do you remember what that meant? Yes. It was life-changing. This is amazing. The Bible is truly life-changing. I love this story about this missionary who was trying to, in India, trying to distribute pocket-sized Bibles. And this Indian man who was addicted to smoking looked at these little pages in this pocket Bible and said, those are perfect for rolling up into cigarettes. And he told the missionary, look, I want one of these Bibles, but I actually want to use it because I, they're perfect for rolling up cigarettes. The missionary said, I will let you do this on one condition. If you read every page before you smoke it. So this man smoked his way through Matthew. Smoked his way through Luke, smoked his way halfway through Mark, and was starting to get convicted that there was something 
life-giving, transforming, powerful about this. And he came back to that missionaries years later and said, I was completely transformed by that Bible you gave me. There is something powerful about God's word. When God speaks, his very word brings order out of chaos. All God had to do was speak and the universe leapt into existence. When God speaks, his word does not come back void. It accomplishes what he sends it to do. When God speaks, it transforms. This is why Satan desperately wants to keep you out of God's word in any way that he can. Because if you are truly letting God's word get into you, you will be changed. This is God's way of changing us, sanctifying us, transforming us, making us like the image of Christ, is having his word change us. Paul says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James says to be diligent to implant the word which is able to save your souls. Paul says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that the man of God may be thoroughly complete, thoroughly equipped, made complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is a transforming power. If you are struggling with your doubts, with your addictions, feeling absent from God, don't complain if you are not in God's word. Because this is the way that God wants to reveal himself. This is the way that God wants to transform you. Is by you being in God's word. Don't say, God, why aren't you giving me help with my addictions? Why aren't you giving me help with my depression? Why aren't you giving me help? Why do you feel so absent? If you are not in God's word. That time in my life when I really went through doubt and almost became an atheist, looking back, I was not spending time in God's Word. I had been reading it once a year from the time I was about 11 to about 20, and I thought, Bible reading is getting boring. I know the plot, I know what's coming, and I stopped reading. And my soul started to starve. Because you don't read the Bible just for information. You know, when you go to a supermarket these days, you buy goods, you can see the nutrition facts on everything you buy. You could become an absolute brainiac knowing about every carb, fat, protein breakdown of every food in the world. But that knowledge is not going to give you nourishment in life until you eat the food. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You don't just read the Bible for insight, for new information. You read it for spiritual life. Because God's word is unlike any other word. God's Word transforms. You know, I changed my Bible reading habit. Instead of just aiming to get my three chapters in, which has its place, but for me, it became so focused about getting it done. That's what my focus was. 
That I wasn't, I was, my eyes were scanning the page, but I was not interacting with God's Word. Since that time, I set aside time for reading it. And I don't have a set amount for what I'm going to get done that day. I just say, God, speak to me. And I read slowly, and I try to understand each text. Sometimes I read five verses, sometimes it's a chapter. But since that time, I just am awed and inspired and stirred up and encouraged by what I am seeing in God's Word, even though I've read it so many times. It's just, it's blowing me away, this, who this God is. That's what I would encourage you. The Bible is life-changing. Let's quickly review this again. Prophecy, unity, the big issues, index to history, life-changing. Make a fist. The Bible is a fighter. The Bible is enduring. Peter says, all the glory of man is like the flower of the field. The flower withers, the grass withers, but the word of our God endures forever. The Bible has tried to be stamped out by dictators, by skeptics. The Bible keeps coming back. You think, boy, we're living in a time in history where people just don't respect the Bible anymore. This is not new. This has been a repeating, recurring theme where almost every generation at some point said the Bible's outdated, it's sexist, it's unscientific, it's just for simple people. No sophisticated, intelligent person can believe it. But the Bible keeps enduring. It keeps transforming lives from the PhDs to the people who can barely read. The Bible keeps transforming and keeps coming back. The Bible has been translated in most of the languages of this world. Voltaire said that the Bible will become extinct in my lifetime. It'll be outmoded, it'll be an artifact of history. Well, Voltaire died, and a hundred years later, a Bible society bought his house, and Voltaire's house was used to print the Bible. The Bible is enduring. Just to give you an example of how the Bible endures, I want to... Okay, everybody loosen up, jiggle a little bit, because we're going to go on a little bit of factual, intellectual exercise here. This is to prepare you for the world ahead, for college. Just wake up yourself a little bit. We're going to talk about textual criticism. Don't fall asleep just yet. Why this is important is because there's an idea out there that... No matter what the Bible originally said, no matter what the Gospel writers originally said, we can't even hope to know what the original writers said because the Bible has been translated hundreds of times. It's been passed down, there's been errors, mythologies crept into it. It's impossible to know. Have you ever played the game telephone? Someone says a, a message, whispers it, and it goes down the line, and by the end of the line, it's completely something different than what the original message was. 
that's what's happened with the Bible. First of all, the New Testament. You know how many times you pick up uh, what what trans New English translation do you like to use? ESV. Okay. Do you know how many times the ESV Bible has been translated from the original? Once. Straight from the Greek. It hasn't been translated hundreds of times. That's the first thing. Now, historians, when they want, when they look at a work of, antiqui- a work of antiquity, that means a, a, a piece of literature from ancient history, they want to know how accurate the copy you hold in your hand is with the original. And the way they do this is by counting the number of manuscripts, handwritten copies, and asking how close to the original document is our oldest manuscript. I want to give you an example of how this works. Your great-great-grandmother in the 1840s had this lemon pie recipe that won awards. It became legendary. Here you are, 170 years roughly later, you decide you want to taste exactly what that original lemon pie tasted like. So you start doing your genealogy research, you start trying to find family, and you try to find copies of this recipe that may have been passed down the line. You find 40 copies of this recipe from different families you had to hunt all over North America. You found 40 copies of this famous Aunt Betty Lou's lemon pie recipe. So, from these 40s, unfortunately, the original burned Sherman probably did it when he marched through destroyed Atlanta. But anyway, the originals burned. We don't have the original. William Sherman, after doing Civil War. Okay. You don't have the original, but you are going to try to recreate the original from your 40 copies. Now, 35 of these recipe cards call for white sugar. Three call for brown sugar, and two call for Splenda. Which do you think the original recipe... White sugar. White sugar. Because as this recipe went out in different directions, people made mistakes. Maybe somewhere in 1890, they developed a taste for brown sugar. And so as it went down the line, that became a corrupted copy. And everywhere down the line, it said brown sugar. But because people make mistakes, but they don't make the same mistakes, as this text, as this recipe went on the different channels, they maybe changed spelling, maybe changed other ingredients, but we can know with quite a lot of confidence that the original called for white sugar. We can rule out Splenda because they didn't have Splenda in the 1840s. That's just an example of how, when, why the number of copies are important. Because people will make mistakes, and once a mistake's in the text, as it goes down the line, it might stay that way. With the writings of Plato, we have about nine or ten handwritten copies. Which is pretty good for an old work, because a lot of times things are written on paper and materials that just don't last. Some of the 
the Roman historians. We have 15 to 20 copies. And a historian goes, you know, that's pretty good to have 15 to 20 handwritten copies because we can put those side by side and get a pretty good idea of what the original said. But the gap between Plato's originals and our oldest manuscripts is about a thousand years old. Same thing with the Roman historians. These are roughly, you can look up in Josh McDowell's Evidence Demands a Verdict and you can see the exact statistics. The next best well-documented text of antiquity is Homer's Iliad. Homer was a blind poet. The Iliad was kind of the, the Greek Bible. It was one of their sacred texts. We have, I think, about 540 handwritten copies of that. And the gap's only about four or 500 years. Quite impressive by the standards of history. But now brace yourself for what we have with just the New Testament. We have over 5,600 Greek handwritten copies of the New Testament. And when you combine the, language, the other languages, Christianity just exploded in the first century. So it went all over the globe. So when you combine the handwritten manuscripts that, from, that are Syrian or Coptic or Latin, it's over 24,000. And the gap between the oldest... Do you understand why the age gap is important? Because when you have an age gap, you, don't, you can't really prove what might have happened. There. There's more room for error to creep in. But with the New Testament, the smallest gap, depending on the dates, could be 20 to 50 years. So basically, when you combine all this, we are able to recreate what the New Testament said with about 99% absolute certainty. And that 1% no critical point of doctrine hinges on it. I believe we can trust the Bible completely. In some Bibles there's a verse in, in 1 John. See, there's a couple verses in the New Testament. I just want to explain how this textual criticism works. I think in, in uh, 1 John 5, there's three that bear witness on earth, and then three that bear witness in heaven, and it's a Trinitarian passage. It was written in the Reformation, the King James Bible. They had manuscripts that were, were pretty old, and it was in that. Since that time, we have uncovered thousands of, of manuscripts that are even older. And they're able to tell that in the, or near as they can tell in the original document, that verse was not in there. That's just an example of the 1% that's disputed. But this is just to, to tell you that when someone like Dan Brown says that, with the Da Vinci Code, I don't know if you remember, that was probably, that's maybe ancient history with you guys, which I hope so. But if these claims, the, where the real mythology is, is the stuff that teenagers are spouting in internet chat rooms about how the Bible's been translated and corrupted and we can't, because I, it's amazing this bull stuff that keeps spreading up. Because the people who have the PhDs who are actually actually looking at these manuscripts and studying it, they go, there is such a high degree of accuracy. And it looks like I'm putting some of you to sleep. I'm sorry, but I just want you to have absolute confidence that the Bible you hold in your hands is what was written 
2,000 to 3,500 years ago. Whether it's true, whether it's propaganda, whether the original writers were eyewitnesses, that's going to be one of the first things we look at tomorrow. But the Bible endures. The final evidence we're going to look at, I'll just quickly run through these again. This, I just, I think this is great. As you study this issue further for yourself, you'll be able to keep this as a great way to call to mind these evidences. So we'll rush through them one more time. Fighter endurance. The final one is of index finger pointed. Jesus endorsed it. All scripture points towards Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. This point won't be as strong until after tomorrow's morning evidences where I, I try to argue that Jesus is God revealed in the flesh. But Jesus told the Pharisees that the scriptures cannot be broken. The basic argument goes, people will say, say I, someone says, how do you know the Bible's true? And you, you, you quote the verse in Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Someone will say, that's circular reasoning. You're using the Bible to, to prove itself. So if the Bible's false, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. The argument I want to use, let's, let's look at the Bible first just as historical documents, test it to the same standards of history. It reveals a man, Jesus Christ, whose words have been carefully preserved for us. And these words that have been carefully preserved for us, he says scripture cannot be broken, shows that this God-man, and I, I, bear with me because these evidences are coming tomorrow, but this man who's unique, who conquered the grave, rose from the dead, and I'll give you the evidences tomorrow, he believed that the Bible could not be broken. What greater authority that when God became man, he's the one who put his stamp of approval on the Bible and said scripture cannot be broken. Jesus used the scripture, even though he was God in the flesh, on arguing with Satan, he used the scriptures. When you hold the Bible in your hands, you are holding a tremendous gift. You're holding something with supernatural power to comfort you, to enlighten you, to inspire you, to equip you. Meditate on Psalm 119, and it just goes through all the evidences of dwelling in God's Word. Meditating on it day and night. If you are struggling spiritually, get back in the Word. And wrestle with it. Say, God, speak to me. If you want God to speak to you, if you want God to make Himself clear to you, let Him do part of the talking. And to let God do part of the talking, Listen to him in his word. He will speak to you. He's stamped his evidences all over the Bible. Read it. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Read it prayerfully. And it will change your life. So, I said one more time before, and I'm notorious for this, but now we'll do it one more time. Seven evidences. And just to really knock him out with his cabin leaders, can you do this one more time tonight in your cabin discussions? Yes. So, prophecy, unity, 
And Jesus endorsed it. Jesus endorsed it. Thank you very much.